Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello. Hello and welcome (laughs) to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblo. And episode three, here we go. The feedback you've all provided us so far is that we look really professional and I want you to know it's just the two of us Mm -hmm. um, on a video call. So I appreciate your feedback that we are professional. I can assure you we are not. No, especially because last week um, my microphone didn't work properly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So um, we are constantly learning. We are constantly upping our game. We are really taking this podcast to another level in 2022. We're just going to consistently be elevating ourselves. (laughs) So I'm really excited to see what we can do between the two of us with this podcast. Me too. Yeah, we're striving for the best. I also, speaking of the best, just like the best of the best, I have in my notes here, Mm -hmm. happy winter Olympics question mark. So I don't know what that meant why I wrote that, but happy Winter Olympics. Happy Winter Olympics to you too. They are happening. Okay. Are you watching them? Um, I don't think so, considering there was a question mark there. So I think it must have popped up at some point like, oh, the Winter Olympics are, are happening. happening. Um, mm-hmm. So congratulations. Happy Winter Olympics. Do you have a favorite Olympic sport to like watch or to perform in, to play, to perform. To perform in? Oh my gosh, that's an entirely different question. To watch? Okay, specifically Winter Olympics, which I feel like are the ones that get less love. Which I don't know why, because I feel like everything's more entertaining. Like everything feels just Is like heightened. That's certainly a minority opinion, I think. Is it? Um. Yeah, considering I did not know that the Olympics were happening right oh. now. Yeah, I don't watch them, but... But... I will say one of my podcast inspirations was You're Wrong About. Mm. They did an episode on Tanya Harding and I recently watched I, Tanya. And I think now I'm going to have to get into watching the intricacies of figure skating, competitive figure skating. But do you? No, I don't. <laughs> but... I don't think you do either. You do either but... but it's such a compelling there's so much drama. I talk mm. to I talk to Eddie about this all the time that really sports for non-sports people, which mm-hmm. I consider myself, should be marketed to encompass all the drama because yeah. it's more dramatic than some of the reality TV that I love and I would be fully more invested if we covered the behind the scenes drama. Are you are you're talking about more of like the Tanya Harding? aspects of i mean obviously not everybody's getting their knees bashed at at an at an it ice also rink. wasn't her knee it wasn't her knee what was it it was her, it was her upper thigh oh her upper thigh yeah it's lots of misconceptions you gotta listen you gotta everybody do yourself a favor and read about nancy kerrigan and tanya harding okay i'm sorry nancy and <laughs> tanya it usually doesn't escalate to physical violence but there's a lot of, because of the competitive nature of mm-hmm. ath- like top of the line athletes, mm-hmm. there's so much drama. 
so much and i just get so caught up in it especially for the olympics it's like you have to be the best of the best to get there so everybody's working i would assume their entire lives or most of their lives to get to these places so it's like Mm -hmm. you are going to do whatever you have to do to get into the olympics and if you don't then you're not the best of the best i feel like that's it's got to take like a big hit on the ego yeah and you have about i don't know you don't have that long probably from the time like your late teens until Mm -hmm. maybe you're 28 and then that's it you're aging out of the olympics Oh my gosh, we have a short window to be Olympic level podcasters. I thought you were going to say to get into the Olympics. And I was like, we are behind on that. We are not going to do that. If you could, though, if you could be in the Olympics, like figure skating, snowboarding, skiing, the ice luge or whatever Mm -hmm. it's called. What's the one um, where you, they throw the big disc and then they like, um, the broom. curling? curling yeah curling. what would you what, they don't what, throw it that would be no they so push good, it though, if they just if they just <laughs> threw it across, <laughs> across like the ice make it way more impressive mm. so what would be my winter olympic sport mm-hmm. of choice mm-hmm. if i could and if you were good um, at it I, like let's hypothetically say you're good enough to get into the olympics what are you doing okay in the winter uh i think speed skating okay (laughs) because i can't explain it okay no i can't explain it please don't ask any follow-up questions i won't i won't won't. but i feel like i maybe it's because i've been watching glow recently and i'm just Mm -hmm. interested in uh the idea of any type of skating Mm -hmm. like competitive skating you say glow but yeah glow the wrestling that's not the right one no that's no no that's that's not the right one spinning out was I no there's a show about I know roller derby's different please don't mm-hmm. yell at me I'm not no, why would that I? inept but but don't yell at me Jared. I'm not I'm not but I don't know why that just I guess something about glow is in my head reminding me of uh speed skating it's a show uh, about winter speed skating I guess yeah okay. I guess that's what I've taken away from it maybe I'm not watching glow well enough <laughs> no apparently not <laughs> So you, but you would be, you would be a speed skater. Yeah, they're in like a very funky position and just mm-hmm. kind of like I just think it's I think it's fun. Okay. What would you do? I think I would. Um, if I I think if I had the talent and I had the ability to commit to something to like actually practice it, <laughs> um, it right. would be figure skating. I feel like the costumes, okay. I feel like the moves, I feel like the music choices sometimes are really good. Um, mm. Yeah, I think I would just like the drama of it all and like the flair of it all and the flamboyancy of it all. It just kind of like calls mm-hmm. my name. Not that I would okay. ever be able to do it, but if I could, that's what I would do. You could. You could. And like I, it's so funny that that was my choice because now I'm thinking about it. I quite actually do i ski i do ski i i yeah. can you just, not at an olympic level no. but i can like perform one of those activities and i didn't even choose that activity in any regard just no, well you know what it's me. a fantasy so like why choose something that you can do now exactly. why choose something you can do it's like go exactly shoot for the stars you know exactly go big or go home yeah so i guess we're not watching the winter olympics i mean Good luck to everybody that's there. Um, go team yes. USA. Um, or or others. Yeah. 
Do we perform well in the Winter Olympics? I honestly don't know enough. But yeah, go us. I couldn't tell you a thing about the Winter Olympics. Where are the Olympics being held right now? Even China, maybe? No, that can't be right. <gasps> no, I think that is right. You know why? Okay, maybe I do know a little bit about what's going on. Because there has been backlash Beijing. with it being held in China. Yes, because of the fact that um, one of their tennis players... Mm-hmm. Has been oh. not seen publicly. Also, there's a whole big thing about like privacy um, with the apps. Did you hear about that? With the apps? Which apps? With, um, so a lot of, um, I don't remember who it was, but they were asking Olympians to leave their personal phones at home because of like cyber security or something like that. And mm. Grinder, the hookup app, um, basically just banned banned the app from being downloaded in China because of privacy reasons. There's a like kind of a security, cybersecurity issue, issue or like concern going on right now uh, mm. surrounding the Olympics. Yikes. Okay, so yeah. we did know a little bit about what was going on. Winter Olympics, no question mark. Winter mm-hmm. Olympics, exclamation mark. But other than that, you're not really, you're not watching them. No, I, I haven't really had much time for the for the winter olympics this, okay. this time but i i will i'll i'll make a effort to check it out i won't okay <laughs> okay so if we can be in agreement on that it'll be um it'll be our secret that we actually will not but okay maybe no, in I'm the future I'll try no my best. not even in the future yeah okay okay um on that note do you want to mm-hmm. get us started this week you're going first Oh my gosh. Okay. Yes, I will. I will get us started this week. I'm I'm really excited for this one, actually. I've been going through when we kind of select our topics, and mm-hmm. I'm starting to get really into it, and I'm learning so many new things. <laughs> starting to get into it, episode three. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Listen, friends, I really, I hope that you've stuck around with us mm-hmm. because- I've been a little nervous the first two episodes, and so I really feel like we're finding our groove a little bit. Oh, absolutely. And so this episode, I really, really liked learning about and learned new stuff myself. So I'm going to be talking about Sally Ride today. If anybody still has their Forever 21 t-shirts with the NASA logo, there's just like the general NASA logo on them, break them out because they're going to be relevant for this episode. Okay. <laughs> Sources for this week include articles from All Gay Long, Extra Magazine, and The American Prospect, interview material um, from Huffington Post and NPR. Um, Again, we're going to include these links in our show notes, but I just don't want to give everything away at the top, so I'm not going to tell you the, Mm -hmm. the article names. Okay. Also, full disclaimer, I did cry while doing research this week and like i don't know if there's anything left in there so just in case this might get a little misty uh i just love it's a good love story and i really love it all right so sally ride was born in encino california in 1951 so she's like a boomer but a fun Mm -hmm. one we like her okay she grew up a Dodgers fan, a nationally ranked tennis player, where she became really good friends with Tam O'Shaughnessy and even met Billie Jean King. So um, she was a sporty girl. She had cute hair, but it just wasn't enough for her. Um, she went on to Stanford, where she got her bachelor's, master's, and PhD in physics in 1978. So really, she's Dr. Sally Ride. Ooh, she's, she's a smart yeah. woman. Okay. Yeah. 
I see you, Sally Ride. In 1978, when she got her PhD, she's incredibly smart. Only 3% of doctoral candidates oh in God. physics okay. were women. So that's what we're dealing with. Okay. Yeah. And when I pulled that statistic too, it was like probably not that much has changed since then. So mm -hmm. excellent. <laughs> um, great. We love to hear that. So her PhD focus was in astrophysics and free electron lasers. I didn't try to investigate more on what that was, so I won't be taking follow-up questions okay. about that. Okay. Um, I just kept thinking about the episode of Parks, Parks and, Rec, and Rec, where Andy wants to play yeah. with the lasers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, where he's at a community college uh -huh. and taking like a class on lasers, but they're not like laser no. pointers, and he says it's a significant bummer, and so... That's all I could think about, so I don't know what free electron lasers are, mm -hmm. but Sally Ride knows about them. Mm. So Sally, I mean, she's, she's going to be Sally from now mm. on. Okay. I like it. I like the ring. I like the ring of it. Our friend Sally. Yeah. Just our, our gal pal Sally. Mm -hmm. So she always figured she was going to stay in academia and research, but after completing her PhD, NASA began pushing really hard for diversity within their space program. Um, it wasn't always her dream to be an astronaut, but once it was kind of on the table to be one, that was all she thought about and all she wanted to do. So later that year, Sally was selected to be part of NASA Group 8, the first group to include female and non-white astronauts. Wow. Yeah, she was one of 35 people selected out of 8,000 applicants. Wow. Yeah. So she was like the top of the top. Yeah, absolutely. And does that number sound familiar at all to you? It does. Frida Kahlo was also one in 35 women to be educated at her school. So that's a really, uh, really uh, coincidental number. Yeah. So I think 35 is like a lucky number. Back to episode one, Frida Kahlo was one of 35 women in her Mexican school. And then um, Sally Ride was one of 35 just people in general selected out of 8,000 applicants. So somebody, if somebody knows like numerology or something, let us know what, what that means. So for the women now in the program, NASA added a women's locker room, which it's reported that astronaut Judy Resnick apparently added a Tom Selleck poster to. Oh, also, Judy. instead of using weird like condom-like things for astronauts to pee in while they were in space, um, they actually created some kind of like toilet structure. <laughs> Did you say condom? Yeah, they would put like a little thing over their penises to just like like a tube he into yeah kind of it's like it was described as a condom like vessel to okay. pee into. Okay. um so you know tom Selleck in mm. in locker rooms toilets uh you could just blame affirmative action for all of that it's all the women's sure. fault it's it's mm. diversity's fault that astronauts got toilets and tom Selleck. we're okay with that we're fine with it um I would want Tom Selleck. I like. I thinking to myself. I want a poster of Tom Selleck now. His yeah, mustache and, like a and his muscles. Like, right. Well, yeah, toilet given. But <laughs> now in this current moment, I want a poster of Tom Selleck hanging above my desk. <laughs> Perfect. So then, for the next five years, Sally worked as a ground communicator and helped develop a robotic arm for the space shuttle. She married fellow astronaut Steve Hawley and trained for her first space flight. So. During this time, training to be like a straight up astronaut, to go to the space. Like I am going to just say things that are pretty simple to understand, but 
I want people to understand the gravity of the situation. Oh, gravity. Gravity of the situation. (laughs) (laughs) So she's training to go to space. And she was asked if a space flight affected her reproductive organs. Did Mm. she plan on being a mother someday? And if she wept when encountering a problem on the shuttle. (laughs) So they're asking her if being a woman is going to affect her being on this space mission. Yeah, just like straight up. How often, like, can you keep a log for us of how often you're weeping on the job? (laughs) Right. What's happening to your uterus? And um, right. And how often will you cry? Right. Yeah. So she's weep, dealing with specifically. this. Yeah. Weep. Like that's a very descriptive word. That's a so... hard cry. That's not even like a <laughs> subtle. That's not. <laughs> yes. Right. So she's straight up. She's a, has a PhD in physics. Mm-hmm. She's going to space and people are like, are you crying a lot? How often are you crying? Um, <laughs> so this was kind of all bad enough, but even worse, considering that wasn't just the journalists that were inquiring about like, some really scary women's issues. So actual rocket scientists, so the people who worked with her at NASA, mm-hmm. um, probably many of them, I would imagine, also PhDs and mm-hmm. just like they're building rockets. Right, they're um, smart people. Right. So they asked her if for a six-day, six days space mm-hmm. flight, um, mm-hmm. If 100 tampons were the right number. (laughs) Um, So Sally simply replied, that would not be the right number. (laughs) Oh my God, Um, that is so funny. So not smart people. At least about just women. Like maybe you know everything to know about building a rocket, but you can understand something fairly simple. So 100 tampons? Yeah, it also adds to this that the tampons were tied together by their (laughs) strings and so again like i'm sure that these rocket scientists literally thought Mm -hmm. that like this would serve some kind of purpose but Mm -hmm. it also effectively ruins the usage of a tampon so for those Mm -hmm. who may be curious i did a little bit of tampon math special just for you so (laughs) perfect yeah, I, I I really, like I said, I want to provide you with the best research. So mm-hmm. um, a typical box of tampons probably has between 16 to 24 in there. You can get okay. like various sizes, some of different colors, whatever. But the amount, sure. about 16 to 24. So mm-hmm. you probably on average would use about one box of tampons per period like depending and if you're using tampons, but barring any medical concerns, you probably would not use more than 30 tampons per period. And a period would last for five to seven days. So the amount of time she'd be in space if she even had her period. Um, that Right. That's once you have to, you have to go up into space the, the week or so that you're on your period. <laughs> right. <laughs> like there right. are three other weeks that she's not on her period. Yeah, and I don't know that they even bothered to consider that, but okay. it's fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, for all we know, these rocket scientists could have thought she was bleeding from her vagina constantly. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Also, one cotton tampon, so free mm-hmm. of any other tampons connected to it, which is how they come, um, mm-hmm. it's inserted fully into your vagina, and then it has a little string hanging out so you can remove it without having to like put any fingers into your vagina. It makes sense, right? It's smart. Yeah. Seems like a good invention. It's helpful. Hygienic. Yeah. Right. Except 
for when you use the string to tie other tampons to it, also by their strings like sausages. Like how would that? That's it's like a a clown, uh, you know, like a like a like a the flag. handkerchiefs. Yeah, yeah, it's like pulling handkerchiefs out of a sleeve. Like what purpose? Do, who are they? What does that serve? I know, like, I who does that serve? So, I have so many questions. Like, what did they think the strings were for? Like, did they think they were for tying them together? Like, right, just in case you lose. A tampon. You lose, like maybe it's right. a gravity issue. Maybe they don't understand periods Keep them in, in the box. general. Like I don't know. Keep but... them in the box. It, they don't. You don't have to unwrap them. You don't have to. You know, if there's a, a plastic applicator, you don't have to take them out of the applicator. You don't yeah, have to it's... tie them together. Oh, it's too much. Like. I just keep thinking about it. And um, Marsha Belsky also has a really funny song about the, Mm -hmm. it's called the hundred tampons. And it just really captures the humor of this situation. I just, I can't get over it. So yeah, they, they gave her a hundred tampons tied together like sausages. um, Oh, they went through with it. And said, yeah, like hope, here you go. Hope for the best. Good luck in space. So, okay. so you know what? Like those rocket scientists, they're they just they don't Thank impress you. me much. I you know? Mm-hmm. Have you heard that song? Do you know what song Shania I'm talking Twain. about? Is it Shania Twain? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know who sung it, but it was. I think it's Shania Twain. It's definitely like a like a country ish song, but mm-hmm. it was my younger sister Megan. Sorry, I'm saying your name, Megan, but it was her and my karaoke like go to karaoke song when we were children because I think we were born as forty year olds. It makes sense. And it's a bold choice. It feels right for you. It's a hard song yeah. to sing, but I guess when you're ten, no one's a good singer. You're not going for you're not going for accuracy. No. You're going for can you hit in the vicinity of the notes? And I couldn't, but it's a fun song. It's a great <laughs> it's a great song anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> um so despite these absolutely bonkers levels of misogyny, on June 18th, 1983, at age 32, Sally Ride became the youngest American, the first American woman, and the first queer person in space. Wow. Yes. So is that something that you knew about her, or was this all completely unknown? No, I I had heard rumors that she was queer, but I wasn't sure if she was a lesbian or if she was bi or... I, I, there was... I, I didn't know. All right. We'll we'll get into it. Okay. I assure you. Um, so she flew mission STS-7 aboard the Challenger shuttle. I always thought that she was the first woman in space also, but it turns out she wasn't. She was the first American woman in space. The first woman in space was the Russian cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova. Sorry, I mispronounced your name. Sounded great. And that was in 1963. But I guess since the US and Russia were engaged in like the hot and heavy space race, Mm -hmm. um, that was probably something that wasn't really covered. After two space flights and more than 340 hours in space, Sally Ride returned to her physics career on Earth. She investigated the Challenger disaster and eventually moved back to California, where she became a physics professor at UC San Diego. She also divorced Steve Hawley, and that's it. That's the end. Oh, she just divorced. Oh, and... I'm just kidding. It's not the end. Okay. <laughs> I was like, okay. It's not the end. Well, I'm still impressive either way. 
if that would have been the it, end, that would have been a very impressive story. But you didn't explain anything about h- how she's queer. No, incredibly impressive. Um, but no, that is not kind of the end of her story. That was the end of sort of the story that the public knew about her for a really long time. But I still have three more pages of notes to go, so don't worry. Once Sally was back from her space flights, she received multiple awards and commendations, including an induction into the National Women's Hall of Fame, which kind of sounds like a funny name to me, and I don't know exactly what it is, but she's in it. Sally Ride's in it, and she has also won many other things. Um, At this point, I'm sure the guy who asked her if she wept while dealing with problems kind of wanted to eat shit and... I do hope he feels that way. (laughs) And if he didn't eat shit, I'm going to say it now, sir, you can go ahead and eat shit. (laughs) I agree. I completely agree. (laughs) Like, I don't know. I don't know how much more proof you need that Mm. what you said was completely inappropriate. So Sally was not a huge fan of the public eye. She never really sought endorsements. She never really approved biographies of her um, or cared for any other notoriety though she did appear on an episode of sesame street and the tv show touched by an angel so that's kind of that's what she did afterwards um she also became a professor and focused a lot of her work on introducing children mainly young girls to the stem field this became one of her greatest passions in life and what she wanted to be remembered for she also authored children's books and founded sally ride science with tam o'shaughnessy Sally and Tam were childhood friends and they met um, like the tennis circles in California. So they were childhood friends and eventually partners for 27 years. Um, More than business partners, I hope. More than business partners. Their relationship was private to most people except their close friends and family. And it wasn't until Sally's death from pancreatic cancer in 2012 that Tam came out with a statement publicly about their relationship. Uh, She released an obituary saying they were long-term partners. And it's not perfectly clear how Sally identified, though her and Tam were in a certified domestic partnership in California. Sally's sister, Bear, reports that she did not use labels and Tam has said, if I had to list the labels that she liked, she was an athlete, she was a physicist, and in fact, being a physicist was her favorite. So I refer from here on out to Sally and Tam as partners because that's how they chose to classify their relationship. Mm. Sally and Tam were private about their relationship, but more so out of necessity rather than a desire to hide. Tam said, quote, since we started our own company in 2000, we made the conscious decision not to be public about our relationship. The reason was simple. Our company depended on corporate sponsorships, and back then we didn't have confidence corporate leaders would support us if they knew we were a couple. Corporate America is really nervous about gay women. When we started Sally Ride Science, we were just worried that it would affect the growth of the company and the sponsorships. So I giggled a little bit because I kind of love the quote, corporate America is really nervous about gay women. (laughs) (laughs) They better be. Corporate America, you better watch your back. Yeah, absolutely. So... This hesitancy was completely valid, though. So in 1990, which was seven years after Sally's first flight, NASA attempted to have homosexuality become a, quote, psychiatrically disqualifying condition. Ooh. So, yeah. Oof, really. Mm. Um, so the policy never went into effect, but attitudes like this on top of things like the military don't ask, don't tell policy probably fostered the belief that being openly gay would affect their company and mm-hmm. Sally's legacy. 
Though Sally was always effortlessly breaking barriers without a second thought. So when she found out she had pancreatic cancer, her and Tam kind of just said fuck it and decided to be open about their relationship. When the nurses at doctor's appointments would ask Sally, like, who Tam was, like, who is this person that's with you? Mm-hmm. Sally would reply, she's my partner, which Tam describes as validating and really stuck with her. And then they also became more publicly affectionate. At one point before Sally's death, Tam asked her, quote, who am I going to be in the world? And Sally replied, you decide whatever you decide will be just fine. Tam then goes on to say, very few people in general knew that she was gay, so it was really Sally telling me to do what I thought was best, and then my friends helping me realize that I needed to be true to myself, and it changed my life, and I wish Sally could experience that. This was kind of in reference to them deciding to be open about their relationship after Sally's death, because it was Tam who released an obituary um, regarding them as partners. Right. President Barack Obama selected Tam to receive Sally's Medal of Freedom on her behalf after she had died, making Tam and Walter Nagel the first people to accept the honor on behalf of their same-sex partners. Hmm. Tam reports, quote, I was profoundly moved by this very public acknowledgement of my central role in Sally's life. I remember thinking, finally, I don't need to be secret about who I am anymore. In 2015, three years after Sally's death, same-sex marriage became recognized by federal law. NASA now includes a biography of Sally Ride that recognizes Tam O'Shaughnessy as her partner of 27 years. And I wanted to end with a story that Tam tells of when she first knew her friendship with Sally had kind of turned into something more because it's a really sweet moment. Tam says, it was kind of a magic moment. When she came to town, we just get tons of exercise and just talk talk about her experiences in Houston, and we talk about old tennis days. And I talk about biology, and we talk about what we wanted to do in the future. And just this one day, we'd gone for a long walk. We'd gone to the pizza parlor, and we walked back to my house, and we're sitting on the couch, and my dog, my old cocker spaniel, missed me, so I just sort of petted her. And suddenly, I felt a hand on my lower back, just a gentle, and it was like, what? It gave me the chills. I looked back, and it was just like Sally was in love with me. And in that moment, I realized that I was in love with her too. I guess it was just growing maybe in bits and pieces over a long time. But it was really that moment that I was like, oh my, you know, it was just a special moment. And so Houston, I think we found the sweetest astronaut love story of all time. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's the story of Sally Ride. It's hard to include all of the Mm -hmm. groundbreaking things she did as an individual and her relationship with Tam only came out publicly in 2012. So there's not a ton of information aside from really sweet anecdotes like Mm -hmm. Tam kind of gives interviews about, but this was an amazing story to read and learn about. And they're very sweet. It's such an amazing story. And she is, was an amazing person. And again, like most of the women and people we talk about on this podcast, but like breaking boundaries. And it's, a shame though that she was such an icon such a legend was doing so many great things was probably someone that a lot of women looked up to and probably still do in that field um, and in stem in general and she had to kind of hide who she was so that people would accept her and would give her business and it also 
is sad that having to face a serious illness, a fatal illness, like um, pancreatic cancer, was it? Mm -hmm. To then be opening up is really tragic. All of it's a part of you and you should be able to be open and proud about everything. Yeah. That's what made me cry doing the research this week was because Tam still kind of gives interviews and talks about, you know, their life together. And that's what's really difficult is that they had so much love this whole time and they they truly felt like right. both of their legacies would have been tainted by the fact that they were in a relationship and they were in love. And so that's what I think kept pulling at me this whole week was that you hear the, just these beautiful little stories of like everyday love mm. that you want to hear all the time and the fact that they couldn't talk about that until honestly Sally knew she was going to die right is is really difficult right that's a painful it's a painful reality that a lot of people have lived through um when people from her generation come out and are public and open it makes it easier on our generation mm -hmm. and future generations to come because there's someone to look up to and there's someone to be an example, there's not a lot of public role models and figures to look up to. So I think it's mm -hmm. really important when we do have one and when we find one and we can we can be for sure that, um, mm -hmm. you know, she was a queer role model that we kind of have to latch on to her memory and her accomplishments. So, yeah, that's Sally. And this was a really fun one this week and a lot that I didn't know so really good yeah, stuff thank you for thank you for telling me about sally thank you for listening about sally you're welcome Alrighty, so this week i'm also going to be talking to you about a first um okay. so sally ride was the first female American in space. And the first that I'm going to be talking to you about is a first that's not really an accomplishment, mm. but it is a first. I'm going to talk to you about the first and maybe only conviction of lesbianism in the United States. Oh, so a different first, a little a bit different of a bummer. Kind of first. I know. But I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Right, because it's the first and maybe only. I want to know the logistics of this. I want to know how this was enforced, sure. how it was discovered. Like, I sure. tell me it all. I'm ready. Okay. I used Wikipedia. I used the Wikipedia page for Sarah White Norman and Mary Vincent Hammond, the page for history of lesbianism in the United States, and the page for the Plymouth Colony. I used an outhistory.org article titled Legal Case Norman Hammond Plymouth. March 6th, 1649, with an unknown author. Um, I used a blog post from a site called Quirica called Queer History March by Cheyenne. And I used the National Park Service's LGBTQ Heritage Theme Study, Chapter 19, which is titled Historical Landmarks and Landscapes of LGBTQ Law, written by Mark Stein. So I want to start off by talking about the Plymouth Colony, which is located in Massachusetts, and it's the second successful colony to be founded by the English invaders after Jamestown in Virginia, and it's founded by Puritan separatists. So the colony only exists from 1620 to 1691, but it does a lot of damage in the time that it exists. And so 
It's a special kind of fucked up colony for many reasons, but for the purpose of this story, um, Plymouth Colony is a fucked up colony for the fact that most of the citizens of Plymouth are fleeing religious persecution and searching for a place to worship as they see fit whilst wanting the groups around them to adhere to their beliefs. And so the social and legal systems of the colony become very closely tied to their religious beliefs. Yeah. So they're just being a little hypocritical of like, we want everyone to have the freedom to do what they want. That's why we're here. But also do what we want. Please and thank you. Right. It's like the same thing of being like, no, every religion is valid and right. But also my religion is the valid and right one. Mm. So like you have to follow my religion. Right. Otherwise, like you're not gonna, like you're not doing it right. Okay. Yeah. You know? So icky. And that's fine because I go to Massachusetts to visit friends and see the cranberry bog. So we can, that's fine. We can, I'm okay hating the Plymouth Colony. I'm okay with that. Me too. And I will and I have and I will continue to do. Okay. Perfect. So laws are not formally compiled anywhere in the early years of the colony, but are officially organized and published in 1636 in the 1636 Book of Laws. Um, That's what it's called. They are not known for clever titles. (laughs) Creative. And in this Book of Laws, it details certain crimes and their associated punishments. And there are several crimes that carry the death penalty, which include treason, murder, good old witchcraft, arson, sodomy, rape, bestiality, adultery, and cursing or smiting one's parents Jeez, man. right so just like right out the gate it's like all of these all of these bad things which some of them are pretty bad like murder sure. and rape but some of them like um witchcraft and sodomy um i don't think yeah but fully the t- it's it's the 10 commandments a kind basically is it in, yeah a, mo- a lot of those uh dumb ones that don't make sense mm-hmm. like the whole parents thing i guess not witchcraft that's a whole different conversation but like a lot of them just like straight let's make the 10 commandments uh laws okay Although the Plymouth colony is really bad at follow through and the actual exercise of the death penalty or any real harsh punishment is fairly rare. There's only one sex related crime that ever results in execution, which is a 1642 incidence of bestiality by a man named Thomas Granger. But other convictions that technically fall under the death penalty are usually commuted to a lighter sentence. And by a lighter sentence, I mean something like severe whipping by reason of insanity. So what they think is a lighter sentence is like not a lighter sentence at all. But I guess compared to death, a lighter sentence. Sure. Like if that's the bar, I guess it's lighter. Right. But I guess at the time it's kind of like death or whipping, death or whipping, you know, like, okay, well, well, give him some lashes and, and put <laughs> yeah, him on take you know, what you can send him get beggars can't be choosers mm-hmm. people who curse their parents can't be choosers i guess right if you curse your parents like, you deserve it yeah, yeah yeah and just like the death penalty sodomy statutes which are usually geared towards any sort of like non-reproductive sex which then morphs into same sex usually male relationships are created but they're not always enforced And in 1636, John Cotton, who is a minister and a theologian, proposes a law for Massachusetts Bay making sex between two men or two women a capital offense, but the law never gets put into practice. How, how, what was the proposal for how to enforce or like monitor this law? I guess proof wasn't really as much of a concept then because they were just like throw women in wells and be like, survive. Or, or you're I, I guess either you die mm-hmm. because you 
I got thrown in a well or you survive and you're a witch and I will literally I kill will, you right. then. So I guess I guess that wasn't so much of an issue except for the fact I'm just if you're like watching uh-huh. for like gay men to have sex uh-huh. with one another, that seems like a you problem right. rather than a them problem. Right. Like something is happening with you. Well, okay. First off, back then, people's reputations and word had a, held a lot of, you know, weight to it. So if right. there was someone that just said, hey, I know or I heard of this person doing this thing and they were a trusted member of the community, mm-hmm. their word was taken over any other sort of proof. You know, so it was mm-hmm. enough of proof to then be like, ah, great, let's let's put them on trial. Let's convict them of this thing. Okay, that's a bummer. Thank you. Also, people were just kind of making shit up left and right. So yeah, I guess I'm I'm giving the benefit of the doubt that they were actually looking for evidence when I should have reminded myself from the start that that wasn't the case. In the colonies, it was a very limited scope for true justice and true um, means of... Uh, <laughs> of investigation right we haven't come too far but at least a little progress has been made barely (laughs) but then in in 1656 the connecticut colony passes a law against sodomy specifically between women it also includes between men but nothing really comes of this either and i think this is a really interesting comparison to the way that indigenous peoples and their concepts of sex and sexuality and gender which were and are less restrictive and less heteronormative and less binary like that of the Europeans. And so the Europeans are coming in and they're basically saying anything that they're doing, we're doing the complete opposite of that. So they're being really strict and they're making all these rules. But at the same time, the colonies for the most part are all talk and no walk, except for in the late 1640s when two women named Sarah White Norman and Mary Vincent Hammond are prosecuted in the Plymouth Colony's Court of Law on charges related to sodomy. Mm. So real quick, let's discuss what we know about these two women, which is almost surprising to me that we have any sort of personal record on them. And so the two bullet points that I have on them are pretty much all (laughs) that we have on them. And so Sarah White is born around the year 1623. And in October of 1639, she marries a man named Hugh Norman, who is the son of another man named Hugh Norman and a woman named Agnes Walcott. And Sarah and Hugh's daughter, Elizabeth, born in 1642, drowns in a well at the age of seven. And they have at least two other children, Phyllis and Anne. And so that's that's what that's like kind of what we know about her. Okay. Extensive biography. And then Mary Vincent, what we have on her is that she's born in 1633, 10 years after Sarah White. She's the daughter of a man named John Vincent. She marries a man named Benjamin Hammond, 12 years her senior, who came during the Puritan migration in November of 1648. And Benjamin Hammond had emigrated from London in 1634. So here's what happened. Around 1648, a neighbor by the name of Richard Berry accuses Sarah White Norman, Mary Vincent, and a man by the name of Teague Jones of sodomy and other unclean practices. Not long after, Richard Berry says he has borne false witness against Jones, but doesn't withdraw what he said against Sarah White Norman. The two women are prosecuted for quote-unquote lewd behavior with each other upon a bed, over the course of three court documents or three court hearings. And in these three court documents that we have of them and really are all that survived of this trial, Mary Vincent, who is 15 years old, she's newly married, 
is admonished, meaning she's basically let off the hook with a warning. But Sarah stands trial and is convicted. The reason for this is most likely because Mary Vincent is only 15 years old at the time of the charges, while Sarah White Norman is 25, which is basically this like haggard old woman at the time. (laughs) She's like a spinster now. Yeah, by 25, she's this like decrepit old woman in their eyes. Right, like we don't need you anymore. Right. You've served no purpose. You've you've born children and thank you. Goodbye. Right, right. <laughs> and in 1950, about two, 1950. Jesus Christ, nine, 1650. Ooh, 1950. <laughs> a time traveler here. And after that, she was convicted and became a time traveler and perfectly survived. And that's the end and of the story. That's the story of Sarah White Norman. No, in 1650, the court sentences Sarah finally. And the document reads, The said court have therefore sentenced her, the said wife of Hugh Norman, for her vile behavior in aforesaid particulars, to make a public acknowledgement, so far as conveniently may be, of her unchaste behavior, and have also warned her to take heed of such carriages for the future, lest her former carriage come in remembrance against her to make her punishment the greater. And so what that basically means is the only punishment that Sarah White Norman is receiving instead of the death penalty, which you would see normally for a male-male sodomy trial, Mm -hmm. instead of this death penalty, she's receiving the punishment of publicly acknowledging what she's done. And other than that, she's basically let off the hook. I feel like there's so much to unpack with that. One, I don't fully trust that. And I really hope this story has an okay ending. But I don't know that I trust it. If these are like super moral Puritans, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around the idea that anyone's being sentenced to death because it just like doesn't seem to jive with the whole thing. But weird to just be like, okay, uh, did a terrible thing, something we regard as terrible, but an apology is fine. And the part to unpack is that's super gendered Mm -hmm. friends Mm -hmm. of like, we would probably straight up murder men who did this, but you're a lady. So just say you're sorry. Maybe have a couple more babies if possible. We don't know because you're so old Mm -hmm. now. You're ancient. You're 25. So like, no, you're sorry. The whole thing too is like, so if Sarah is 25 and Mary Vincent's 15, like there's an age thing going on there it's like what were the dynamics between Mm -hmm. someone that's 25 and someone that's 15 is it the same as it is now like we're in our mid-20s and i would never talk to a teenager if i didn't have to yeah right and so it's like it's like they're mean and they're they're disgusting so if i don't have to talk or interact with them i don't really want to so it's like what were the dynamics there but Sarah's let off the hook, but basically has to publicly acknowledge what she's done. And in a religious colony like Plymouth, it's basically social suicide. It's making her and her entire family outcasts. It, they'll mm-hmm. likely be like shunned or exiled, like left to fend for themselves. And she'll basically become the equivalent of a town witch or like the devil. And on the other hand, compared to the death penalty received by those of male-male relationships, this seems to be quite lenient. And there are also other colonies nearby, such as one called Marymount, that are more sexually free and religion plays an extremely small role in their lives. I don't really have too much research on it. That can be like a full topic in another episode. But that colony, Marymount, is 
what's regarded as like the gay colony basically and you know is they you know had phallic symbols all over and they were more like sexually liberated and they commingled with indigenous tribes right. and they were just like more like chill about everything mm-hmm. so it seems like out of the two things like being right just having to publicly acknowledge what you've done yet maybe social suicide but at the same time like if she had the means which again i don't know if she would have she could take her children and go to Marymount and maybe have you know a more of a life mm-hmm. there but i don't know if that was a possibility necessarily right. for a woman at that time with children and i also think yeah because if this is a super religious community like who knows what the options are for ending a relationship that you're in but also that's a really great point especially considering i think with stuff like this there were certainly just like you pointed out areas of the country at that time or the colonies that were more accepting and just like generally not weird about this stuff again going back to the ultimate point of this podcast that this stuff has always existed and these experiences always happened and there's been records of that stuff too and so Mm -hmm. this like puritan bullshit was a like it was a choice it wasn't just we're this is what people thought at the time it's what those specific people thought right and from the conception of plymouth it was we're gonna put on the guise of being free and having freedom but at the same time if you don't do it our way we will persecute you we will shun you we will ostracize you like they drove away quakers and they drove away all of these different people and they basically again created what they were trying to escape right so it was absolutely a choice all of this is a choice when it comes to politics and religion and as written in the outhistory.org article patriarchal custom was evident in the fact that court records in this case referred to sarah white norman as the wife of hugh norman and although sarah norman was publicly charged with a serious crime her name was only used once in the documents (laughs) so everything we're saying it's like like even though this is like a really big thing that's happening and it's a serious crime they don't even have the decency to yeah because she's just not a person like obviously she's just a wife and at this Mm -hmm. point like potentially a criminal she's but she's not real we she's the property of her husband and so that's how she needs to be regarded exactly women weren't given citizenships in colonies like this so you're right interesting It's also funny that they regard Sarah as the wife of Hugh Norman because in 1649, around the time of her second hearing, Hugh Norman actually left Sarah and their children and he moved back to England. (laughs) He basically was like, good luck. I don't want to deal with this. I, and so he abandons them. And so we're talking about how women aren't regarded as citizens in this colony and he abandons them and what he does is he goes back to england where he's from and once he's back in england he spends all of his money and he dies in poverty so like it's like bad choice after bad choice after bad choice there's i have so many questions so that's what happens to sarah and mary who is admonished her and her husband reconcile and they go on to have multiple children and basically live uh a standard quote-unquote happy life ironically enough three years after the trial richard berry the man who originally accused the women of sodomy and other men including the accused teague jones were prosecuted for homosexuality and ordered to part their uncivil living together so the man who was the one that they took 
his word and basically said Teague Jones, Mm. Sarah White Norman, and Mary Vincent all engaged in sodomy was then later found guilty of participating in sodomy with Teague Jones. We don't love the idea of throwing someone else under the bus and potentially lying maybe, but you know what? I guess it's a good diversion strategy. If, if this whole system is based off of just like, like being a snitch, I guess that works to your advantage. Well, clearly not. He just got caught three years after the trial. He's basically like, he's getting run over by the bus. Well, it was a little bit of payback then, but I guess for, I guess for a a couple years, maybe he was able to, to be like chill and fun because he Mm. had this whole diversion going. Right, right, right. Everyone was like, well, he just narked on these women so clearly he's not going to be doing that himself why would you know like we trust this guy why would he be why would he lie why would anybody think that you know you you always gotta follow the age-old strategy whoever smelt a delta you know what Mm -hmm. i mean and richard berry was smealing and dealing (laughs) (laughs) he was he was a smealer and dealer (laughs) absolutely um not much is recorded after the court documents about these two women, but apparently Sarah dies in the year 1654 around the age of 31, and Mary dies in 1705 around the age of 72. So we thought that Sarah White Norman was a decrepit old woman at the age of 25, and Mary Vincent, after this, went on and lived a very long, happy life. And again, I don't know if those 72. dates are historically accurate, but yeah, 72. Wow, that's like... I mean, that's got to be close to a record for the time. Absolutely. And their trial documents, which are very limited, are the only known official record of sex between female English colonists in North America in the 17th century. And because of these records, this is believed to be the only known direct conviction for lesbianism in American history. And I want to note that the modern incarceration rates for queer women are incredibly high, Um, I don't have the specific statistic in front of me, but I believe it's in like the low 30 percentile of female prisoners are identifying as queer in some sort, Um, but it doesn't directly correlate to the actual crime that was committed. Mm -hmm. And during my research trying to check, um, trying to fact check this, the only other case that could fall under this claim is one that I stumbled across called the San Antonio Four. And maybe one of us will cover this also in depth in a future episode. But basically, four queer women were wrongly accused and convicted on charges of child rape in the 90s. And the women's sexualities were heavily used in trial, but they weren't convicted directly and singularly for lesbianism. So we're seeing a lot of cases um, in the U.S. particularly where sexuality is definitely weaponized and used against victims and other people. But there haven't been any cases from what I can find that directly correlate to women um, having relationships with other women. And we can see executions and we can see charges against men who have relationships with men, Mm -hmm. whether that be in the colonies or up through, you know, the 1970s when sodomy laws were decriminalized. Um, But it's- Sorry, sorry. Uh, Hold on. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Take that Uh back. Uh, You want to give me that year one more time? From the colonies to the 1970s. 70s? 
Yeah, um, we're in the 20, 50 years ago from the colonies until 50 years ago, we had sodomy laws in every single state in the United States. <sighs> Holy, my body immediately is rejecting that. I'm like feeling a lot of physical <laughs> feelings that I don't like. Right. So all of the laws that were coming into play during these colonial times were basically kept around and evolved until they were put into place in each of the states and it wasn't until the 20th century that they started to get repealed yikes see another reason we're doing this podcast Mm -hmm. i literally didn't know that and i am hating it Mm -hmm. and so while there are convictions for lesbianism in various other countries in the world or kind of like the u.s's case where there's lesbians that are getting convicted or queer women getting uh, convicted Um, but there's no direct correlation to the crime. Mm -hmm. There is the high probability that the case of Sarah White Norman and Mary Vincent Hammond is the only known direct conviction in American history. Okay. And I want to close out on something that I hope to get listeners to think about, and that is in the blog post Queer History March by someone named Cheyenne. They write about Sarah and Mary's case saying, Doubtless, this matters little to the women who, in subsequent centuries, would not face conviction, but rather forced commitments to asylums, forced marriages, therapeutic rape, and other horrors for similar conduct. But it does say a great deal about how women's sexualities were framed by institutions of power. I think that's an important part to think about, because when you had originally given me the statistic, I was thinking that, you know that population may be, especially in modern times when we don't have, we definitely have forced psychiatric commitments, but in terms of, you know, incarceration in some of the work that I do and in other things, like we know that queer women and queer people in general are at increased risk for, you know, being in abusive relationships or because of their identities, like, having to deal with substance abuse and all these other things and so I it makes me think of those being like some kind of relationship to arrest in that way so again like you're not necessarily being arrested for having same-sex relationships or being queer but that identity fully is a huge part of being like criminalized in our criminal legal system mm-hmm yeah, and we're seeing that back then, and we're seeing that now with staggering rates of incarceration of queer women. And that's the story of Sarah White Norman, Mary Vincent Hammond, and the potentially first and only conviction for lesbianism in the United States. Wow, this took me somewhere I didn't expect to go. I am about to go 1030 at night down a rabbit hole of gender differences in incarceration, and I'm very excited about it. You're welcome. it's kind of a bummer though it's definitely really um it's it's gonna make me a little sad but uh i'm i'm fascinated now it's gonna be like a a complete rabbit hole for me tonight listen that that's what this podcast is all about proposing things and learning growing yeah you live and you learn baby and i've had so much growth i'm I'm so (laughs) proud of you for that thank you we're really thriving Thanks for tuning in to episode three of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about a few historic firsts. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even the vastness of space a little bit more fun. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. 
To see photos from this week's episode, make sure to check out our Instagram at historicallyreally. We hope to see you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>